To celebrate the second anniversary of this series, I wish to thank you for an incredible one million downloads. Cheers! Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. In the aftermath of Jacques Cartier's third and last expedition to the St. Lawrence River Valley in 1541, and despite the failed colonization attempt, throughout the rest of the 16th century, the European fishing fleets continued to make almost annual visits to the eastern shores of Canada. Chiefly as a sideline of the fishing industry, there continued an unorganized traffic in furs. At home in Europe, new methods of processing furs were developed and beaver hats in particular grew very fashionable. Thus, new encouragement was given to the infant fur trade in Canada. Tadoussac Seaport and Outpost was founded in 1599 when two Frenchmen acquired a fur trade monopoly from the King of France, Henry IV. They built the settlement at the confluence of the Saguenay and St. Lawrence Rivers in today's Canadian province of Quebec. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. The story of New France leads us to the St. Lawrence and the story of Jacques Cartier and Donnacona, the leader of the St. Lawrence Iroquois. And a lot of things have changed, moving ahead several decades. The most shocking of which is the complete disappearance of the St. Lawrence Iroquois, which may at one point have been 25 separate nations with a very similar culture, cousins to the Haudenosaunee or to the Huron far to the west. Scholars are divided, but sometime between the 1570s and the 1580s, it appears that the St. Lawrence Iroquois were completely taken out of the area, either by disease brought by Europeans or by warfare. And now there's a big debate on whether both of those played a factor and which groups they warred with. The St. Lawrence Iroquois, they had a unique form of pottery, as all people do. And that pottery right around this time that we're talking about, the time of their disappearance, shows up in other places suddenly, among the Huron Confederacy and the Iroquois Confederacy, meaning that they took in at least female captives who were making pottery. Now, were they captives or refugees? We don't know. Perhaps the St. Lawrence Iroquois were at war with the Haudenosaunee. Perhaps they are at war with the Huron, or both. There's no way of knowing exactly. A lot of native confederations were founded just before or during this mysterious time that the St. Lawrence Iroquois disappeared. The Huron Confederacy, the Pitoon Nation, and many others. Some of the later dates for the Iroquois Confederacy put them in the 1550s, 60s, 70s. As a result of all this, the St. Lawrence, it was a no-man's land. Essentially not comfortably within anyone's sphere of influence. But this wouldn't be 100% true. It was clear that certain tribes along the St. Lawrence had small areas that they were in complete control of. The Innu controlled one small area called Tadoussac. Now, the Innu clans around Tadoussac controlled the trade with Europeans. So after Cartier left, the Europeans still came around. And as fur became more and more fashionable and rarer and rarer in Europe, the trade became more and more valuable to the Native Americans in North America. And so the Innu around Tadoussac, instead of being nomadic, like all their other brethren, became semi-sedentary just to control that one site because there was a language continuum from the St. Lawrence all the way to Hudson's Bay and beyond. And this particular group of Innu managed to establish a monopoly over the fur trade. It was difficult for Europeans and Native Americans to meet up at random points. Neither of them had the same concept of time 
Neither of them had the same concept of maps or directions or times of year, and there was very little communication between the groups, especially in the 16th century. But the Innu did establish that at the port of Tadasuk, at that port, Europeans can make it there any time of year, and there will be furs to trade. And on the native side, they had managed to create networks of trade going deep into the continent. So all the really good furs from the north, where the animals have these big heavy pelts, especially the beaver, they were all being funneled down to Tadasuk. And so by the 1580s and on, these trade networks that used to trade little shells from the ocean with native copper from deep inland, co-opted by the fur trade, furs from deep within the continent in exchange for European goods, particularly those goods made out of metal that could be used for many different purposes that the natives otherwise didn't have. Again, they had native copper, and they would wear ingots of it as jewelry and things like that. But iron, a hunk of iron, could be worked into useful tools. And at this period of time, you think, oh, well, European axe comes along, and now all the natives are going to use European axes. That doesn't seem to be the case. What happens early on in the archaeological record is that an axe head would make it to the Huron, which it did. As early as the 1550s, the Huron were actually in possession of European metals. But that axe head would be broken apart and turned into things like small little knives or arrows. So at this period of time, 1550s all the way to 1600 and even beyond, European metal is being traded, but it's being used as if it were a native material. And sometimes modern social studies teachers will present it as the Europeans were taking advantage of natives, giving them little trinkets and baubles for skins that they could resell for tons and tons of money back in Europe. But you have to take a wider view. Take the native perspective. They had no access to these iron goods that changed the way they lived their lives. An iron arrowhead would last far longer than a flint arrowhead. That changes your quality of life instantly. Whereas furs were plentiful, especially for the Innu, who subsided on mostly hunting and gathering seafood. So again, from the native point of view, the natives were giving away their trash in exchange for things they had absolutely no access to. And in fact, the furs that the Europeans wanted the most were what were called wet beaver. Beaver skins that have already been worn by natives as clothing for quite a long time. And so to the natives, they were worn out. They were used up. They were dirty. They were greasy. They were trash. And so both groups of people would walk away thinking they got the better of the deal. And that's really what you want from a trade. So far from the Europeans taking advantage or controlling the situation or corrupting the culture, the natives were in firm control of this trade of furs for European goods. Again, the Innu, specific clans close to Tadusuk, had a monopoly, and all the tribes beyond it benefited to some extent. The Huron were the granary of the Algonquins, and they were able to trade the Innu corn, and in exchange, they received metal goods that would further increase their production of corn and the quality of life of everybody in their villages. And the trade networks, native in origin, were pre-existing, and the European goods just flooded the market and participated in it. They were not created by the Europeans. In fact, the natives at Tadasuk would sometimes refuse to trade with the Europeans and wait for more and more traders to show up so that there would be a glut of buyers for their furs and only a certain number of furs driving up the prices. So the native traders knew exactly what they were doing. And in return, they would distribute those as trade goods or gifts to other tribes, building alliances, making the Innu very strong and their allies somewhat stronger in the process, all to protect them from the Iroquois to the south, whom they feared more than anyone else. Now let's turn to the European side. What is their part in this story? Why are they still hobnobbing around the St. Lawrence? If you read your traditional history books, it mentions Cartier, then there's an 80-year gap or so, then you learn about Samuel de Champlain, and they act like nothing happened. Cartier was long gone, but the cod fisheries that were hidden off the coast of North America, the same families that participated in all the fisheries, several generations removed, were now getting involved in the fur trade, as fur became more and more expensive and more lucrative compared to fish. 
This entire phenomenon of basically not knowing what all these Europeans were doing, despite them being there, is called a conspiracy of silence. Again, it started with the fisheries, and then it extended two, three, four generations later into fish and fur. Essentially, private traders had been canoodling all up and down the coast of North America, all without telling anyone. It all stayed within their family, within their business, within their village. And in fact, evidence of this is the traders along the St. Lawrence from the 1550s all the way up until we have Samuel de Champlain and formal record keeping. A lot of them were from Saint-Malo, the exact same port town that Jacques Cartier came from. So far from thinking that the story just ended with Donacona and Cartier and Roberval, it just kept going. But nobody was writing about it because people were making money. And if you know there's a place you can go and make some money, but there's only a certain supply, you're not going to tell anybody about it. And so from the 1540s all the way to 1600, we have the conspiracy of silence. While there weren't colonies in the sense that you or I would think of them, these fishermen and fur traders would set up summer colonies. They would construct shacks and, when the weather was good, have these small little dwellings, small little villages that would crop up suddenly during the warm seasons and then suddenly go empty when it was time to go back to Europe and to a far fairer winter. And we have almost no stories about this period of time, except records back in France and the Netherlands and England and other places mentioning supplies to be sent out, supplies received. And that's about it. The stories of those men, the adventures, the wars, the battles, the drama, the relationships... Who knows? It's a huge mystery. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, geez, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And then we had John Cabot, and we had Verrazano, and we had Cartier, and we had all these other people within a 30-year period, and now suddenly we have half a century of just nothing, of mystery, a conspiracy of silence. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text history that's H I S T O R Y using the code 30605. <laughs> 